Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Christopher Berakat back on the show. We get a bit of an update on him. It's been just over a year since we last spoke, and he has some big life updates coming through. And we also talk about when he's next competing, some changes that he's made to his training, dig into some of the literature surrounding training at long muscle lengths, what are his opinions on that, which might be contrasting to some opinions out there. And then we dig into making gains as an advantage bodybuilder and what is the natural limit the genetic ceiling is this a thing what are chris's perspectives surrounding that and i think this was a wonderful chat so you guys are aware we have our mini cut movement group coaching where you get your training your nutrition all taken care of in a group coaching setting and uh, that's something you can sign up to at any time summer's approaching maybe a mini cut is something that's appropriate for you so you can jump on that that's going to be linked in the bio but without further ado let's get into the chat Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Chris Berica back on the show. Uh, last time we spoke was a little over a year ago, it was episode 290. Uh, we we're talking about actually your contest prep, uh, not losing muscle on a cut, and kind of what uh, kind of strategies you used for that. Uh, this time around, actually, the first thing I want to do, Chris, is kind of get, uh, and we were talking about uh, an update on you, um, an update on life, uh, one we were already just discussing off air, but also with your bodybuilding as well. And I guess actually your life update might also impact your bodybuilding quite a bit. So we can talk about like what you're planning to do surrounding that as well. Yeah, for sure. So I am uh, currently three weeks out from being a dad, uh, hopefully around three weeks out, right? It could be any day now, but that's definitely like, what's on the forefront like that's on the forefront of my mind that's you know uh what me and my wife are like prepping the most for so to speak on a weekly and daily basis kind of thing um super excited about that super super excited about that very grateful for that and uh it has impacted like my bodybuilding timeline and, and some of those competitive goals but um as i've gotten older and just have more like experience competing the the dangling carrot isn't like the stage like getting to the stage it's just you know uh slow and methodical self-improvement over time so understanding there's going to be some phases where like things are going well some phases where you're kind of maintaining a couple phases you might even take a few steps back but as long as you're like consistent over the 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 long haul like you're gonna be moving in the right direction so that's where my head's at um I'm hoping to potentially compete in 2025. Um, I feel like if I wait longer than that, it just kind of gets a little bit more difficult, right? Um, and in the past, I kind of done, like I did 2011, 2013, 2017, 2021. So between 2013 and 2017 was four years, 2017, 2021 was four years. So if I do 2021, 2025, I think that's plenty of time to make enough progress. Um, but also like make me miss it enough and like make the contest prep sort of worth it, like the struggle of it worth it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where my head's at from a competitive sense, but uh, not, not like hyper focused on that at all at the moment, it's kind of yeah. uh, on the back burner to an extent. Yeah. I imagine um, like, I can't even imagine how it is for a female in the, like with pregnancy and everything along those lines as a bodybuilder going through that, because that's a like, like I said, it's a big change for us as men, like having a child and the pregnancy yeah. and all of those things. But for them, like it's wild, like that must, yeah. like they see their body completely change. 
Um, but yeah. for you, like it, you can't be a, like bodybuilders are like is inherently quite a selfish sport. Whereas now it's like when you have a child, like that is now number one priority. Whereas and everything gets knocked down the list. So yeah. I can definitely see like you don't want to. I I think some people try and do it, and I don't know how much they enjoy it. But like being a, a new dad and competing that season uh, definitely makes sense to me that you're like giving it a good like, like get into your habits and routines surrounding the child with your yeah. kind of partner to kind of bring them up into the world before stepping on stage <laughs> yeah that's where my mind's at. i just want to like acclimate to like this is kind of the the new normal right like what is baseline going to be and that's always evolving and there's constant like transition periods in life and stuff but kind of just acclimate to that and say like all right this is what my new structure and routine can kind of look like and then give myself enough time to like game plan and, and really make that a goal. You know what I mean? But I get a lot of inspiration from a lot of the vets in the sport because when I was younger, I wasn't really, I probably wasn't giving them enough credit for doing what they were doing while managing everything else they're managing. So now like I got a lot of inspiration from just seeing some of the OGs that do have families and stuff. It's like, damn, like we, we talk about how difficult prep can be without any of that. And and they're still managing to do that while maintaining everything else going on in their life. So I'm kind of, I'm excited for that challenge, but you know, preps have gotten easier over time. So um, hopefully just, it's something you're doing and it's not all that you do and everything that you are, you know, kind of just make it fit within your, your daily routines and um, you could almost go about it like incognito mode and just like cruise into it until, you know, closer to the end where shit just gets harder and harder. But for the majority of it, hopefully it's kind of like a, a smooth sailing thing. But yeah, shout out to, to all the veterans and, and all the OGs that make it look easy. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think yeah. if I was trying to bring up a child for like my first prep, like I barely managed to maintain relationships in that first prep. I just so inexperienced didn't know how to respond to things and like you said every time you compete it just gets easier and easier and to the point where i think it was alberto nunez his recent prep where he was like i don't know if he tracked the whole time and like people surrounding him wouldn't have known he was on prep and yeah he's obviously a veteran in the game and he deals with being leaner better than most people i think but still uh, like credit to him for that and yeah if you can do something similar where it's like really only people know you're in prep like that last kind of month or so like that's a pretty good kind of good yeah, way to go for sure and your partner i imagine is somewhat acquainted with you going through prep and having expectations surrounding that and how you kind of balance one another out oh yeah so she's been with me before i've ever competed <laughs> so we've been together since high school since 2008 and uh my first show ever was 2011 so she's been through it all and uh she knows exactly <laughs> exactly what to expect so yeah it's cool but Pregnancy is the real bodybuilding, man. Uh, my, oh, wife, yeah. <laughs> my wife gained like 40% of her body weight because she's super small at baseline. She's like 100 pounds, and now she's out to like wow. 138, 140. So for me, at 175 pounds, that would be me going up to 245. <laughs> it's like, it's wild, right? So yeah, that's that's literally bodybuilding, creating a human. So um, credits, <laughs> credits to all the moms out there. I was like such a such a new respect for all the moms going that have gone yeah, through that, that. um yes yeah, it's, it's funny going through the pregnancy classes and the labor classes and stuff just like so eye-opening i joke that the closest i think you did it as well but the the closest experience i've ever had is that the weighted vest like putting on a 10 kilo <laughs> weighted vest 
man that yeah. wasn't fun like yeah. <laughs> and, and then they got no choice about it they can't offload that you can at yeah. least take it off so that's that's uh that's absolutely wild so yeah yeah it's a unique experience um have you got any plans surrounding when uh, the baby's born like do you plan to are you kind of taking it as it comes or are you planning like i'm i'm gonna scale back training frequency and like go through probably maintenance or anything like that yeah no i'm gonna kind of take it as it comes for the most part um i do really want to get three to four resistance training sessions in per week even if it's 60 minutes like if it's a little bit shorter than what i currently do um i feel like i'll need that just for my mental health and i feel like if i don't i'm probably just creating an excuse because truth of the matter is like you get to a certain point your baby should be like taking like three four hour naps or whatever so like there's no reason why i can't i can't sneak out you know what i mean so um yeah i i'll, I'll take it as it comes you know i don't know what i don't know until i experience it but I plan on uh, kind of keeping my split exactly what it is. I only train four days per week right now. So if I can just keep it at that, um, that would be great. But again, it's, uh, it's definitely not the priority. But I, it's so important for me just psychologically and for my mood. Like people wouldn't want to be around me if I'm not training, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to be sure. smiling less. I'm going to be more irritable. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's so necessary. Yeah, I think I think Arnold Schwarzenegger, like I've seen some reel of him quoting it, it's like brushing your teeth. Like training is like brushing his teeth at this point. Like he has to do that. Yeah. Otherwise he's not who he is. So yeah. uh, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I'm always confronted with people with children because when I put out posts surrounding sleep and sleep tips, I always get, I literally had this just recently. People are like, oh yeah, it's all good until you have kids. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I, I don't get it because I haven't had it. The closest I've had is a dog barking in the night and having to like take care of them. So that's yeah. something i mean even you don't know how well like different children tend to like sleep better than others and everything so that's something you're going to just have to face and see how it goes thousand percent yeah i'm uh i don't know I, I don't know what i don't know but i'm confident that we're actually going to get into a good routine and like i just have a, i have a feeling everything's going to be good but obviously we never yeah. know yeah, for sure we'll yeah. so with your training i guess over the last year since we last spoke is there anything uh, any mindset changes, any programming changes, anything that you've done differently within that kind of training uh, to like make any adjustments or even for you, yeah. like physique wise areas you've been focusing on specializing in? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the biggest change over the last year is I've only been training legs once per week. Um, and surprisingly, it's not because it's a strong suit of mine, to be honest with you. Uh, just I'm enjoying the split the way it is. And I'm kind of, I have this perspective where, hey, if I, train my legs once a week, I'll, they'll still progress over time. It might be a little bit slower in the grand scheme of things, but that's okay. And I'm kind of focusing on like my pecs and my back a little bit more. Um, and I just enjoy my split because outside of the resistance training, I'm doing yoga once a week, every single week, like no ifs, ands, or buts. And uh, I'm also doing a little bit of cardio once a week. So Yoga is not like super intensive on the legs by any means, but there's something there. And then the cardio I'm doing, there's something there too. So I'm kind of just cool with keeping my leg training at once a week right now. Um, that's been like the biggest change, I guess, from the outside looking in. And then um, again, sticking to four days per week is something similar to what I was doing during prep, but it's definitely the lowest frequency I've ever trained with uh, in an off season. And uh, again, I'm kind of just like cool with it. Like 
I appreciate that it allows me to recover well. Um, there are some days where like, I would just like to go train, so to speak, but um, yeah, just, it's just work. It's working well for me right now. So I'm, I'm going to keep things put. Um, and that's the thing where it's like, I don't think it's quote unquote optimal on paper, but I think it's working really well for me in my personal context and situations and like what I want to do in my timelines and stuff. And I think sometimes people lose sight of, you know, what's best on paper might not necessarily mean what's best for you right now. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Uh, it's so contrasting to me right now. I, I spoke to Alberto Nunez recently, and I think he said he's training. It may have changed, but he's like three times a week training. Yeah. And I was like, man, I'm running this six times per week. <laughs> At least I'm not doing my yeah. twice dailies anymore. Legs three times a while, quads three times a week for me, which is just an area, a huge focus for me. But I cool. totally get your perspective in terms of like, like there's this range where you can kind of see gains within and like, I'm doing so much more work than you. And maybe I'm getting more gains than if I like set things back a little bit. Hopefully, I mean, yeah. that's why I'm doing it. But I mean, there's diminishing returns big time. So if you can enjoy yeah. other aspects in your life and it's adherable, enjoyable, the, the best bodybuilders are the ones who have been doing it the longest. Like, yeah. So I get that. But, but man, you've made so much progress, man. It's been fantastic to see. I hope so. <laughs> um, no, it's 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 night and day, man. Like when you share your physique progress, this is the best improvement season look you've ever had by far. Um, it just, Appreciate it's that. very clear that you're adding a lot of good quality tissue, man. So yeah, keep up the great work. Um, and yeah, you know, again, it just, it's funny when I was younger, I would see some of the the older people in the sport train three days per week or four days per week or lower volume. And I'm like, what the hell are they doing? Like they're, it looked like they were just kind of going through the motions kind of thing. But uh, I think, you know, the, with the experience and the things on their plate and their personal preferences, like all that went into consideration. So it's not just about like this program is hashtag optimal, hashtag science. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And as you know, like you have these broader principles overarching, so many different paradigms can fit into that. Like people get a bit lost, I think, and confused and they hyper focus on the specifics when it's like take a broader picture. Like yeah. there's many ways we can go about this. Um, when it, many ways to skim a cat. Is that the one? I, I've always yeah. get <laughs> scared. I always many make up the sayings. I'm like, did I say that right? Or did I just make up a new way of saying it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Skim a cat. Yeah, that's it. So uh, uh, one thing I did want to ask you about, I've been asking a lot of my guests to um, yeah, train and obviously keep up to date with the literature is on length and partials or rather that's what it's kind of become like length and partials versus like full ROM type of thing. We recently had uh, Mike kind of debating Milo and Pack, which you might have seen. And uh, I think I remember this might have been a couple of months ago now. I think it was on a post that Kasim made. And yeah. I actually can't remember what you said. But you had some kind of uh, nuanced thoughts surrounding it, maybe some critical thoughts of why maybe going too far towards like jumping on that bandwagon, if we can call it that, in that sure. it's in vogue. Um, so I'd love to hear your perspective surrounding kind of that literature that's kind of coming out and yeah. if you've incorporated any of it, if you haven't, if you haven't, why, um, and where you are with it. Sure. Um, man, so I did listen to about half the episode actually last night, like I, I knew I was coming ah. on today. I kind of wanted to see like the most recent stuff and, and get an update. So I, I listened to probably a good half of that. Um, and it was a great conversation and I really like seeing that we are investigating these things in the literature. I think one potential 
not issue, but a limitation that needs to potentially be brought out to the forefront a little bit more is a lot of these studies that are looking at, you know, not length and partials or training at a longer muscle length versus a shorter muscle length. We need to pay attention to the demographic of who are these actual subjects undergoing this research. And even if it is demonstrating favorable changes, how meaningful and, and what sort of magnitude of impact is that going to have for someone like you and I who've been doing this for much, much longer? Um, how long have you been training for, Steve? Uh, I always I struggle with this question because I started when I was uh, basically 16. So uh -huh. that's like 15 years. Okay. But I obviously had I had my accident, which set me back to basically baseline. And so again, I was back into things at like 2021. 20, okay. So that would still be over 10 years. So it's certainly over a decade cool. coming to like, like you could say 10 to 15 years. Cool, man. Are you 31 as well? 33. Oh, 33. I might have done some bad math at some point. Okay. <laughs> cool, cool. Awesome. Yeah, well, again, a lot of the, the literature on this, unfortunately, it's in a lot of untrained subjects or recreationally trained people. Um, and even though it's demonstrating a, a positive effect, a part of me questions, okay, because they are more novice and they're way further away from their genetic potential, or like they're literally untrained completely. Um, is it a good thing that they're making greater gains in a shorter period of time? Um, probably like that's, that's great, but how meaningful is that going to be to someone who's like closer to their ceiling already? Um, I still think there's merit there. Absolutely. I, I, I do. I just think some people are getting too excited. And then I think people are missing out when they're like throwing away exercises or movements that do train the shortened position. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to see the research, but I think sometimes we, we give it a little bit too much weight. Um, when I look at the literature as a whole, I used to do that when I was way younger. You know, if I saw Dr. Lane Norton say something back in 2015 or uh, Eric Helm say something or anyone in the, in the field, you know, that was super well respected and they're sharing like a randomized control trial or a meta-analysis, I like, I was like, all right, this is the thing. Um, and I just don't value it nearly as much as I used to when I was younger. Um, so yeah, we need to, we need to be not critical of the actual studies themselves necessarily, but you know, how well does it apply to, to Steve Hall, who's been lifting for 15 years and is getting closer and closer to that ceiling? I, I think there's merit there, but sometimes I think we need to think about what audience are we speaking to? You know, are we, I think a lot of people that listen to Revive Stronger, from my understanding, they, they might be competitors or people who want to compete or higher level lifters. They're not like your average gym goer in the commercial gym um, that is trying to make, obviously we're trying to make our workouts as efficient as possible, but it's not like, oh, we're only dedicating 45 minutes of our time to training. So we want to throw away any exercises that might not be as stimulative and just put in all these exercises that are maximally stimulative. So, you know, uh, we just need to take all that stuff into consideration. Um, but yeah, the research you know, it's continuing to show that there is some sort of positive uh, training at longer muscle lengths. Yeah, for sure. I, I totally, yeah. I totally get your point there. And I think, I don't know if you saw the study on the um, orthopedic device that was like stretching out the calves and they saw 
crazy gains in their calves but obviously these were people not training their calves so yeah. i know eric is testing himself and i'm like i'm super invested in this experiment that eric's doing i'm like i know it's an n equals one because i'm yeah. not eric but he's also someone who's been training his calves for like two decades and if he sees growth through that i'm like maybe i'm gonna buy something <laughs> to like stretch yeah. out these calves to finally get yeah. some gains going again yeah yeah like one thing i'll say i, I quickly took a peek at one of the meta-analyses that looked at partial versus full ROM. And then I looked at the, some of the individual RCTs and I was like, all right, let me just look at each study individually and like the cohort and the demographic population. So like one of them was an untrained women that were around 22 years of age, average body fat, 26% body fat. Another one was considered recreationally trained people that I think haven't lifted for one year. Um, they're around 25 years of age. And then there was another, the, the study that looked at full range of motion squats versus partial range of motion squats. They were basically untrained and their one rep max was, you know, 1.2 times their body weight, their ratio. So again, like that's not you and I, you know what I'm saying? Um, but that's also not to say that, oh, this research is worthless. Let's not look at it at all. But it's like, let's continue to take it with a grain of salt, at least when it comes to making claims that this is going to like really make practical differences in your physique and in your look that's all but yeah it's interesting um you mentioned something about a, a post that Kasim made i think the comment that you might have seen was like i think he he was discussing one exercise versus another and i, I said something along the lines of you know a lot of people aren't going to do just one or the other like we can just include both of them in our training program whether it's on the same day or a different day um and with that said, I still investigate, like right now, I, I heard on the last podcast with Chasm, um, he mentioned that we're working on that lat study. I was going to ask. It's comparing two different exercises. So it's like, it's saying the opposite of what my comment said, like we're still <laughs> investigating yeah. this in the literature so we can get pieces of the puzzle. And then like, we can create the puzzle that we want to create down the road with the bits of information. But like, Sometimes just seeing these these conversations or these debates about like what's better X versus Y. Sometimes I almost need to say like we we need to replace the word better when it's like what's potentially more practical when and why and like or how can we utilize both of these things to complement one another whatever it may be. Yeah, no, I think yeah. that's a great point. I think uh, in the discussion with Kasim, I said something along the lines of if length and partials create more fatigue, then like if you do full ROM versus length and partials, maybe you can make up the volume and equate growth somehow. Because again, if you like, I don't know, like squat away more fatiguing than a leg extension, obviously you're never going to like pick one versus the other. But if you do 10 sets and you equate for like uh, the fatigue side and you bring up the stimulus, it's yeah. you know, again, these are just questions that come through our minds that like, it's interesting. Yeah. And then when it comes to fatigue, we need to talk, we need to consider like, is it more localized or more systemic? You know, sometimes you can you can do length and partials that it shouldn't be systemically more fatiguing at all. Um, yeah, it can potentially cause more muscle damage. It might take a little bit more time to recover. So you, you might need to wait a little bit longer to train that exact muscle group again. But depending on your split and the way you're organizing your training, it, it can be 100% applicable. So there's just so many things to consider. And again, we're all searching for this optimal thing. We all want to know like what is optimal on paper what is the most evidence-based thing ever um and just context is so important that it's it's important to take all these pieces of information 
and then do your best to sort them to fit Steve Hall, to fit Chris Barakat, to fit this novice trainee, to fit this first-time competitor, to fit this seasoned competitor, so on and so forth. Yeah, my I was also speaking to Milo about this uh, in that there's no not been any direct studies on the back. And obviously yeah. the back is just such a complex muscle to try and like study versus like a bicep or like even the quad, for example, or the quads. And um, I was kind of theorizing that maybe people who have been very strict with their back work where they haven't been maybe using as much momentum, they've been like strict full ROM. And obviously in the short position, it's hardest. That's where we're weakest. So maybe you're on paper leaving five reps in reserve in that length and range, which theoretically could be the most hypertrophic. I was yeah. like theorizing maybe that's where people like us, if if you have been lifting that way, if you're like a more like I said to Cassim, like the old school bodybuilders, they were often using momentum like on these cable rows and things and they got bashed yeah. for that. But actually maybe yeah. they were doing something intuitively correct to, to create more growth. Again, it's all just like hypothetical, but I thought that was a, an interesting thought. So have you yeah. have you experimented with any yourself or have you stuck to kind of the your usual lifting? Um, honestly, I've stuck to the majority of the usual lifting, so to speak. Um, I do one like low, like one low cable row where I really like emphasize the stretch a bit, but it's not like all the way wrapped around. Um, I probably should experiment a little bit more with some of those things. One thing I will say real quick about back training, um, is yeah, like from 2017 to 2021, I really focused on like lat training a lot more than I did when I was younger. And it's funny, I feel like I brought up my lats tremendously, but I actually neglected a little bit of upper back work, like relative to what I was previously doing. So when I critically assessed my own physique, I was like, my lats definitely came up, but I feel like my upper back made no progress at all. Or I don't know if it regressed or like, to me, it looked like it regressed because maybe my lats got so much better that it like almost overpowered what was going on there kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting to see like, when you do, like, it's just one of those things like, all right, I changed my exercise selection. I changed my execution. I put a lot of time and energy in bringing this up and it worked out really well. But now I'm like questioning, like, did I neglect my upper back? Too much? <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's, it's interesting. And then when it comes to the literature, there isn't a lot on back training and this one acute study that we're working on. Something I'm more excited about, um, rather than the results of comparing this extension pull down versus this adduction pulling. I'm actually really excited to share some of the methodologies with the other like researchers out there because we this is the first study to our knowledge that we're measuring the cross-sectional area of the latissimus dorsi. So we kind of developed a cool ultrasound method and I hope that other researchers take this ultrasound method and then run randomized control trials in a chronic fashion like 6 to 12 weeks long and see like what yields greater, you know, back growth down the road, that would be really cool. Um, because yeah, a lot of the literature, when you look at it, we we see quads, hamstrings, glutes, if they're using like an MRI, for the upper body, you see bicep, tricep, if they're using ultrasound, and you also see pec thickness. Um, this this lat measurement is, is more, you know, it's pretty complex and stuff, but it seems like we got it down and everyone can nail it if they just practice it a lot of the other research groups. So I'm excited to like, put that little piece out within this study and yeah it would be cool if we if we get more research on posterior chain and, and back training because there's so much literature comparing you know overhead presses to incline presses to flat presses to decline 
when it comes to acute and chronic stuff, uh, looking at deltoid, chest, tricep activation, like all of that stuff, it's been there for a while. There is a lot less information comparing different pull downs, different rows, um, and especially how how does that impact long term growth? So, yeah, we'll we'll see what the research has in store. Um, but it's also one of those things to note where it's like bodybuilders have been doing what they've been doing for so long, as you mentioned, you know, using the closer grip, uh, doing things that maybe did feel more stimulative or they got a better stretch with certain movements. They've been doing all of that and it has been producing some sort of result. That's why they keep it in. Um, so the research is always behind and it's always inspired by what people are doing in practice. Um, so it's important to understand that. Yeah. Um, I remember once I was at USF at Bill Campbell's lab and he had Dr. Andy Gallopin in and he said something along the lines of like, bro science is just bro science until scientists prove it right. Yeah. <laughs> like something like that. So uh, it was just a funny thing that that stuck with me. And yeah, I mean, here we are. We're we're continuing to chip away at it slowly but surely and uh, trying to get closer to, you know, the answer. But it it helps a lot if we just look at what people in the past have done. I think Alberto Nunez said something along the lines of like, similar to this in terms of like pro science being eventually like done in the lab and then proven right or wrong. And he was talking about it like refining what the guy, the bros were doing like this, like yeah. maybe the part length and partials where they were using the momentum to like get that same effect. Um, maybe this is like a refined version where we just work within that length and range potentially. Uh, so, yeah. It's, but yeah, it's it's all interesting stuff, and um, I've been in, I've enjoyed playing around with it at least. I think like uh, when you like you've been training for as long as what we have, keeping excited about stuff and engaged, and especially for me as like with the podcast, I have to stay on top of these things because like yeah. I can't just talk about the same old <laughs> over yeah, and over yeah. again. <laughs> yeah, no, I probably should experiment a little bit more with different exercises. Um, I, I do feel like as you get closer and closer to that genetic ceiling, just some sort of novelty can be beneficial. So yeah, yeah. If, if you've been doing something for 10 years and there's an exercise you haven't done, uh, you might as well throw that, that new tool in the toolbox and see if it can, you know, sprinkle in a couple of gains for you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, where was I going to go? Oh yeah, it was. Uh, you were talking about your ultra, uh, your method for measuring muscle growth, which yeah. uh, you might have a really fun chat with uh, Doctor Ben House because he is. I don't know if you know. I, I imagine you're aware of him. He's like yeah. he. That's like his question. He wants to know how can we measure properly measure muscle growth mm. in people without like biopsies and things. And he was even yeah. going. To, I thought he was joking, but he was going down the route of like using tattoos and <laughs> things like this um, to like. I don't know how I, we didn't go into the specifics of how that worked. I was just like mind blown that he was yeah. taking it to that far. So uh, yeah, it'd it be is, cool if it's complex and there's a lot of variables that impact you know the the acute measurement, so to speak. Um, so it depends, like there's flaws in almost every assessment. Um, I would say for looking at muscle growth, like MRI is definitely the best. Um, but I would say like maybe something that, that Ben was getting towards or was talking about was how so many other factors impact certain measurements on that day, right? So how full is someone's glycogen, um, what their intracellular water looks like, are they supplementing with creatine? How long are you taking between the measurements? Uh, did they train back the day before or three days before? So is there some edema and still a little bit of, you know, swelling there, so to speak? So, so many things can impact it. 
and then you just have like user error of like actually using the tool. So um, I will say though, like if you practice a certain assessment over and over and you get your CV really, really small, and let's say your CV is like below 3% and any like significant amount of growth would be like five to eight plus percent. Um, if you got a measurement that was, you know, over 5%, you'd be pretty confident that something actually did happen. Now, uh, how precise is that measurement? Not super, super precise, so to speak, but yeah, so, so many things to take into consideration yeah. and, and that's why it's not perfect, but, um, Hey, maybe we don't need to take measurements at all. And it's like, hit a rear double bicep. Does it look better? Cool. <laughs> hit, a, hit a rear lat spread. Does that look better? All right, cool. So it just depends. Uh, with with the study you're doing, do you have an idea of when uh, people can expect to see kind of the results or anything from it? Yeah. So um, my buddy Tahran is running it for the majority and I'm kind of overseeing it with a lot of my colleagues. So Dr. Eduardo de Souza, Dr. Walters, my buddy Andrew Barsoon, we're, we're all a part of that. And um, the data collection is going to be done pretty soon because it's an acute study. It just comes down to analyzing the results and then writing up the manuscript. But um, hopefully by the end of the year, it will be published, fingers crossed. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's super simple. We're just um, comparing a pure extension pull-down versus a, a adduction pull-in. We're looking at muscle activation of two regions of the lat, which hasn't been done in the past either. So. We're going to get a lot of questions when we go through peer review of like how we chose exactly where we put the electrodes. They're going to question us on things like innervation zones and all this complex stuff. But we basically did like a thoracic lat EMG and like a lumboiliac lat, so kind of upper and lower. Um, we did we looked at teres major, posterior delt, uh, tricep, and bicep as well. And we're just going to look at the differences between those two. And then we're also looking at changes in cell swelling from pre to post. So like how much of a pump the person nice. got in their lot. And hopefully we're going to try to subdivide the thoracic region to the lumbopelvic region. So maybe this hit the thoracic region better and this hit the lumbopelvic region better if that impacted cell swelling. Um, part of this design was kind of inspired by a study I saw on the PECs that recently came out. I believe it was done in Spain. They compared flat bench to incline bench, and they did a really cool cross-sectional area measurement of the pecs with the ultrasound, and they were able to to, to subgroup the clavicular head versus the sternocostal head. Um, so that's kind of where some of the inspiration came from with the ultrasound measurement. So we'll see what the results are, and we'll, we'll try to get that out there um, kind of as soon as possible, but it, it takes a while. Yeah, for sure. That's exciting. Have, are you allowed to say any of your hypothesis? Of yeah. what you expect outcomes to be yeah i can i can definitely share hypothesis um i'm personally not expecting a significant difference in in the lap with the pollen versus the the pollen versus the pull down uh, i think the pollen is going to be a lot more terry's major we're going to see greater activation there um maybe the pull down a little bit more posterior delt um, i don't think there's going to be massive differences between the two from a emg standpoint and then from a cell swelling standpoint I really don't have predictions or hypotheses there. We'll kind of just see what the data says and, and take it and see what happens. Cool. Yeah, I've yeah, done. But again, it's it's one of those things where like we don't want people to say like just do pull downs, never yeah. do pull ins, or just do pull ins, never do pull downs. It's like take these little pieces of information and continue putting your own puzzle together with those yeah. pieces. Yeah. It's like everyone. I haven't got a seated leg curl in my gym, and 
since that study came out, I was like, why do I even bother training hamstrings when I can't do a seated leg curl? <laughs> and, but it's the yeah. same thing there. I think a lot of people maybe took that to be like, oh, lying, like lying leg curls are just completely inferior in every way. It's like, ah, uh, yeah. don't like throw them out completely. <laughs> yeah. One thing I'll say for competitive bodybuilders, uh, I think never gets mentioned for lying hamstring curls. Something I like about it, I think it helps me with my mind-muscle connection for a rear double bicep pose. Because when okay. you're hitting your rear yeah. double bicep or your rear lat, your hips extended, um, you can potentially squeeze your glutes while you're doing a lying hamstring curl. Yeah, there's active insufficiency there. Some people might talk against that, whatever. But you can do certain exercises just to help you with posing. Like it doesn't have to be like, I'm doing this exercise because I want the best maximal muscle growth stimulus from it. Like if it helps someone like lock in their glutes and flex their hamstring simultaneously while hitting that rear double, then like maybe maybe that's why they do lying hamstring curls and it's not just about like i'm trying to get the biggest hamstrings in the world right now so yeah. yeah there's there's benefits to exercise if you just look at it with a different lens you know it can be something as simple as that do you not see the progress you would like are you sick of writing your own programs or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We create the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that perspective from you because you probably get it. Um, I know you don't maybe share your training as much as what I do, but like every mm. time I post, I don't know, I'm doing a Smith machine squat and someone's like, why are you doing that? And not a hack squat. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it's not like an either or it's just, I was doing hack squats. They're great. I just rotated for some yeah. variation at this point. And uh, people love to pit exercises against one another, which I, I can see some value in it, but there's so in much individual variability. Do you even have access to the equipment that people are thinking about? I think sometimes yeah. it, people do themselves a disservice when they try and like have a hierarchy to like that severe degree. For sure. Yes. You know, when I was younger, like some of the old, old Kai Green videos were a huge influence on like my thought process and inspiration and training. And he would constantly talk about this exercise is yielding a better outcome for this pose. So like he'd be doing a seated calf raise. He's uh. like, this is, this is my side chest. You know, you pose from the ground up. I'm thinking about my side chest, side chest, side chest. I'm thinking about rear double bicep here. So like sometimes, I mean, I love the science, but I also love the art. Like if, yeah. if you love bodybuilding and you like the aesthetic of it, like you, you want to, I like blending the two of these things. And I understand I'm involved in the research field, but I sometimes just love talking about the psychological components, the artistic components. And sometimes, uh, I enjoy that more to an extent. Like it's, it's refreshing. It's, I feel like when it comes to art, there's a lot less like right versus wrong. It's, yeah. it's more subjective and, and not really as objective, but when it comes to science and math, it's like, these are the numbers. So we have more of a black and white 
mindset there. And I feel like that leads to kind of more argument in, in camps and cults and I'm doing this and you're doing that. Whereas like some artists just appreciate art for the art that it is. And yeah. it's like, I wish we can do a little bit more of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, every po every exercise can help you with a specific pose on stage. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, again, I appreciate that perspective a lot. And yeah, Kai Green, uh, I, when I got into bodybuilding, it, well, I actually like one of my early influences was like Matt Ogus. Like I, I, I didn't like follow the, uh, the enhanced side like at all. So, um, but definitely like he influenced my training so much from the beginning. And then like he took me, he almost took me down the scientific route of, cause he introduced me to like Eric Helms and then I got yeah. like all the others there. So yeah, it's so interesting how that influences things. And, and actually the, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit. And I, I always like your perspective on this and you recently shared on your Instagram, it was basically an advanced bodybuilder who had made like quite significant gains, one of your clients. And first, I think my question is like, what is your perspective when people like introduce this natty limit to you or like a genetic ceiling and making gains as an advanced bodybuilder? Like what is your just general perspective surrounding that topic? Sure. I think is absolutely there. And, the, you know, the principle of diminishing returns is real. I think uh, it's way different for a 23 year old versus a 35 year old. You know what I mean? And sometimes I feel like because some of the, the quote unquote experts in our field are older, um, they're sometimes like in their, they're kind of stuck in their own perspective or they're, they're thinking about like their colleagues and themselves or like people that they're working with. And you'll hear claims like, oh, you can only gain one pound of muscle a year, one to three pounds a year, whatever it may be. Um, and that can be true for like the 35 year old that's like really, really close to that genetic ceiling. But that sound bite is not beneficial to the 24 year old, you know, who's far away from it. So yeah, it's definitely there um, when it comes to that client that I shared, you know, he is an advanced bodybuilder. He's been doing this for a long time. I think something that's important to know is like this progress isn't going to be linear for basically any of us. Um, I think a lot of people make a lot of progress in chunks, like in, in shorter spurts. So it might be like four really, really good months of training or six really good months of training or three really good months in training. And then like more of a maintenance period whether it's even like planned or not, or if that's kind of just how like a lot of the outside perspectives of their life kind of just allowed them to focus a little bit more on training for this period of time or whatever it may be. That's how it happens in the real world. It happens in like four month, six month uh, chunks. So even if someone takes a four year off season, the gains that they made within that four years, wasn't this like linear thing. So I think that's what gets a little bit lost. Um, and I also think that there is a large gap between what the research demonstrates and what people claim, um, because there isn't a lot of longitudinal data on this at all, like peer reviewed, published. A lot of the things that we hear when it comes to making progress as we get older and we get closer to that genetic ceiling, it's more through observation and anecdote. Like if we're looking at the top natural bodybuilders, we're looking at potentially their stage weight over X amount of years. And maybe that's not moving much, um, but we don't have like pub published peer reviewed longitudinal data on advanced, advanced trainees. 
And then the thing that I find most interesting, um, actually took a few notes on this because you mentioned you wanted to talk to me about this, was when we look at the research literature for things like training volume um, and more advanced cohorts, the amount of progress that they make in a six to 12 week time span uh, does not align with the, cl with the claims that, you know, are being shared by the same people in the space that are sharing this literature, it, it doesn't align. So like, just as an example, um, I'll, I'll use one of the, the studies that I was a part of because it was one of the strongest cohorts ever in, in, the, in the literature from our understanding. So it was, eight, it was by Aubrey and colleagues 2020. Um, it was a it was a volume study. We essentially looked at twelve sets per week, eighteen sets per week, twenty four sets per week for the legs. I just want to quickly share the amount of lean body mass that was gained in those subjects on average. So we're not we're not talking about outliers. We're not talking about n equals one. We're just talking about average. The twelve set group gained one point two kilos or two point six pounds. That's just in their thigh. That's just from their hip to their knee. It's not whole body, right? The 18 set group gained 1.09 kilos or 2.4 pounds. And the 24 set group gained the least of 0 0.7 kilos or 1.5 pounds. But again, that's just from hip to knee of both legs over an eight week time course. Now, of course, we can critique DEXA if you want, whatever. You can be as critical as you want. But if you're saying someone can only gain three pounds of muscle in a year, and these subjects are gaining about three pounds of lean mass just in their legs in eight weeks, there is a gap there. There's, there's something that isn't aligning there. So it's like we're using this literature to support what like trained individuals should do, but then like the claims that we're making in regards to the outcomes it can yield might not necessarily match. And I think there's some potential issues there. That that makes a ton of sense. Um, and I didn't, I, like when you put it out like that, I'm just like, man, I'd love to gain, like, and I, I don't, my perspective is I don't put self-limiting thoughts. Like I just do, like, and I'll get what I get. Like, I, I just yep. don't see any point going out there and being like, because as soon as you start thinking, oh, maybe I can only gain a pound of muscle. It's like, oh, maybe I will skip that meal today. Oh, that training session probably isn't that important because really I can only gain a pound. It's like, man, I'm just like, I'm, going to gain everything I can, like be as on point as I can and therefore get the best result I can. And that's kind of the perspective I like to take. Yeah, that's the way to do it, man. Um, because whatever your ceiling is or your limit is, like that's kind of what you're going to believe. Um, I don't know if we spoke about this, you and I on this podcast. I've mentioned that on a podcast in the past where I was talking about where sometimes people that are almost naive and like, they don't know make more progress yeah. because they they just like get after it and they just go and I, it always makes me wonder like because they didn't have this self-limiting belief or like this expectation of like this is the maximum i can gain is that why they made such good progress in a short period of time or was it just genetics or was it a combination of the two or whatever it may be but yeah it's it's very very interesting man but um yeah there's there's definitely a gap between like what people claim to be the normal expectation of growth versus like what the data says. And I'm okay with that. If you're kind of saying, 
observationally and anecdotally, when you look at the top bodybuilders that have been competing for a while, this is what we see. But like when you use randomized control trials to support some of the like some of the training philosophies that you that you share, you recommend, and then like your claims aren't based on that those RCTs and whatever it may be. It's there's just a gap there, and I'm not saying that the, the observations are wrong, but I am saying it's not coming from like peer reviewed longitudinal data. It's coming from seeing themselves, their training partners, people hitting the stage over the years at very high levels. But there's a gap there. Yeah, almost it feels a little bit hypocritical in some ways. And and like the the anecdotal, the, the way they're training isn't how you probably train. Well, you don't know how they're training. Like we just don't know. So again, based off observation completely. Within yeah. that study, do you think there was any anything that people who went into it did differently in that study, apart from obviously the sets? Do you think there was anything there that could have played a role? Do you think they were more diligent with their training or some things outside of training that could have played a role? Yeah, so... This happens almost every semester where the the participants say that training in that setting forced them to take their intensity to a new level um, and constantly having a spot on every set and somebody motivating you and pushing you on every set is a little bit different than training alone, for sure. So the environment plays a role. Um, and I think, again, like if you use like rating of perceived exertion, there's a subjectiveness to that where what used to be your RPE 10 can down the road like change. So like, oh, I used to think that was my RPE 10, but now that's my RPE 7. I have a new gear because training to failure is kind of a skill. And like, I think that's one reason why um, some research participants can can make more progress in that time period. I think it just literally having a spot on every single set, someone pushing you on every set. I think the environment's different. Um, I think that definitely has something to do with it. But um, outside of that, no, not really. Like their nutrition's not changing. Their, their sleep routine's not changing and stuff like that. Yeah. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I'd be interested to yeah. know if that study was extended over the longer term, if they'd continued, like you said, are things would it be linear? Would it drop off? Would they get would so fatigued off. or... <laughs> Yeah, I think it would definitely drop off to an extent, right? Yeah, when there's fatigue going to come into play. But um, it's just, it's really interesting because, again, that's just talking about averages. If you want to talk about outliers, I've, I've shared some of that stuff, you know, um, and it's it can be mind-blowing to some people, but I, I think there's benefit to sharing that because whoever's listening to this right now, like they could potentially be that outlier. You know, and there are yeah. also, it's also very important to note, there are also people who do the same exact training and they make very, very small gains or they actually regress. So there's that side of the, the equation as well. Um, I don't want to be too pessimistic, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know what I mean? It's just, again, um, you can see a lot of progress in, in a relatively short period of time. Going back to my client and, and the photo that was shared on social media, I, so him and I were working together for over a year and a half. And I would say he made the most amount of progress visually in about a six month time span. So we started at 218. We cut all the way down to 190. Really, really slow and steady. Um, 
And then I think he made the most progress when we went from 190 back to 205 in like a seven month time span. Um, when we got back to 205, that new, that new 205 was way better than the previous 205. So yeah, again, it came in chunks. It wasn't super linear. Um, and there's, there's a lot that we could potentially talk about. Did, was it beneficial that he got leaner and he was in a, a better state or he was more sensitive to putting on muscle potentially? Was it outside life factors and, and stressors in his life were lowered and that allowed him to, to perform better, recover better, and then have better outcomes potentially? So, so many things that come into play. But um, for the listeners, I think it's important to understand that you know, these things kind of happen in, in chunks and spurts and it's not super linear. Yeah. yeah. Out of, was the, I don't know if I missed it, was the 205 versus 205, were they the same nutritional, uh, like was one a surplus versus deficit or like maybe sure. he was like flatter or fuller in one? Was that, could that have played a role? Yeah, it could have played a role. Um, I always give like diet breaks and refeeds like along the way though. So I don't think that was okay. too big of a factor especially with like how large of the visual change that was seen. Um, but yeah, the thing that was interesting was his maintenance now was way, way higher than it was back then. And I think that also goes to kind of support that, okay, this guy probably has more muscle mass and therefore his BMR is higher. And that's why he's able to handle more calories at baseline. Um, so yeah, there's a, a pretty large difference there. And with I see him, that I see that with a lot of people too, like over the years, yeah. see that a lot. So, you know, you, you take someone from 175 down to 160, you bring them back up to 170, they're, they're eating way more food at that new 170 than they previously were able to maintain on 170. I see that all the time. Yeah. And I wonder, obviously training, like how much he's burning through that, whether or not like his volumes change or he's training harder than he was before and kind of yeah. those sort of aspects. Um, yeah, with him, what was there anything when he came to you, you were like, those are some things you're currently doing that could be improved? Like, was there anything that he was doing that was like, I don't know, quote unquote, suboptimal that you improved when he came into coaching? Or was it literally just, uh, it could have been similar to the, the, the like being in a study and people like, uh, like shouting at you to do yeah. sets. It could have been just that kind of accountability no. to you as a coach. Yeah, yeah. Um, from what I recall, I think he was doing a little bit more power building ish. We, you know, we kind of shifted a little bit to more bodybuilding, more traditional bodybuilding stuff. Um, I will say, so on the while we were cutting, I kept his volumes at a, a moderate, a low to moderate pl place, and then uh, on the way up, as food started coming up and as we were reversing, I did introduce a little bit of, you know advanced training techniques. So adding a drop set to his final working set or doing partials when he could no longer complete a full round, uh, a full range of motion concentric, um, doing a little bit of intraset stretching on one exercise per day, whatever it may be, one set or one exercise per day, stuff like that. That was introduced as calories were coming up and I knew his recovery capabilities would be better. Um, but it's, it's hard to say, like, was that what yielded the most or again, was he sleeping better? Was stress lower? Yeah. It's, just, it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's why we need uh, the device from Ben. If we can measure muscle growth in the short term, because this is the challenge, isn't it? Of like being an advanced bodybuilder, when you make changes to your program, 
like you never like you're not isolating every variable so like you can only like i kind of came back to before like do your best efforts and like yeah. you'll kind of get what you get because people make claims like oh this don't know transform my growth it's like i introduced it a month ago it's like oh man I don't know yeah. if you can say that, like, especially because um, I think there was even some research coming out about like delayed muscle growth. Maybe it was something you did in the past that's like just kind of come to fruition now. Yeah. It, it's challenging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, an interesting thing. I don't know if if you have observed this in yourself, but like something that I kind of feel or something that I see with myself is like right now, like my my arm training, my my arm volume is pretty low. So. I feel like my arms look a little bit smaller to myself, but I also feel like if I increase the volume on them for just like three weeks, they'll like look back to like exactly how I wanted them. Um, but again, is that, is that actual muscle growth or is that like a little bit of edema and like swelling and, and pump? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've actually lost like actual proteins and muscle tissue there. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's something to that whole, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy thing and like there's just a little bit less swelling there who knows but uh yeah have you seen that with like you kind of decrease volume on a particular body part you're confident you're maintaining like performance is staying good you're just doing less work and it looks a little bit flatter it doesn't pop as much like temporarily I'm I'm not very good at putting stuff on the back burner. <laughs> uh, so my arms are like they they well my biceps are triceps. I'm still doing a decent set volume. My my biceps I do four set direct sets a week. I, I'm I'm pretty sure I could do nothing and they'd still end up like trying to creep up in progress. So yeah, um, I think actually saying that like I mean I can notice it if I do like a pool session and my chest like just looks flat and my back looks big. Like I imagine it's a similar kind of visual thing like that, that you can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It makes a lot and, of sense. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you real quick um, in regards to progress over time, like going back to that question and diminishing returns, what was changes to your stage weight from like your seasons across the seasons? Yeah. I'm curious, so, what, what was your stage weight changes? my stage weight from 2014 to 2017 pretty much exactly the same um, okay. i was definitely improved in 2017 similar like you said these guys might be the same stage weight but maybe they came in leaner like visually and you said like maybe they can just hit a rear double bicep and you can see how much like improvement they've had yeah uh, so i did improve but certainly not as much as i should have and okay. then from 2017 to 2021 um like roughly 10 pounds up so i was anywhere from 170 to 175 pounds like on stage so like saw way better gains like that's epic and was actually visually a little bit leaner too so i would say somewhere in the range like 10 pounds wasn't like that's not over exaggerating yeah yeah okay so 10 pounds in four years so to speak and again it's, it probably wasn't linear but that's superb right and and that was so in 2017 how long have you been lifting for at that point 11 so, years yeah like i'd already been doing a decade yeah. yeah see that's that's fantastic right so it's it's good to see that and hear that and again it's like you from 2017 to 2021 is going to be different it's going to be different than you from 2025 to 2029 right like as you have continued to progress till then so like you're not going to expect another 10 pounds from 2025 to 2029 necessarily but if you were a believer of like, oh, I could only gain one pound of muscle per year, would you have gained that 10? Probably not, right? 
Um, so I think that's interesting. I made more progress in my third to fifth year of training than I did in my first to third year of training. And again, this is more for the, the more novice or early intermediates that may be tuning in just because you may, you might not have had the greatest, like start to your training career doesn't mean that like you totally missed out on those like newbie gains, so to speak, you kind of tap into them. If you get your ducks in a row or you kind of improve the things that need the improvement. I think that's important for people to know. Um, obviously this is going oh, like it's going way back, but let's say I started lifting very, very consistently when I was 16, 17 as well. My first stage weight, I was only 140. Uh, and I, I, from 16 to 19, I didn't gain a lot of total body weight and I was definitely spinning my wheels. I was severely under eating. My training wasn't great, but the, the primary thing for me, I was, uh, I was severely under eating. Um, and then from 2019 to 2021, it was actually like only 14 months of an off season. Um, I gained 14 pounds of stage weight. And again, I was still super young. I was only a 21 year old person, but that was still my like fourth, fifth year of training. And it was way better than my first and second year of training. I think that's imp important for people to know. And then from 2017 to 2021, my stage weight and my lowest weigh-ins, there was a four pound difference. So that goes back to the one pound per year. Um, so, but again, I also know it wasn't linear. Like I probably made, I probably put on like 75% of that four pounds and like a really good, like six to eight month push out of that four year time. So I, I think it's important for people to kind of know that. I, I feel like Berto mentioned that too, where he was like, a lot of his gains like came post COVID. So even though he didn't compete from, I think it was 2017 to 2022, he mentioned like he feels most of that progress came from literally like mid 2020 to like late 2021. And then he started dieting. So it's going to happen in these like bursts and in these chunks. And would you say, is it fair to say in those chunks where you make that progress, people might be thinking, well, why didn't you do that the entire time? Do you think it's fair to say, like, sometimes you don't know, like, exactly what is causing it? Like, you're doing your, like, you're trying to give your best effort under the certain circumstances that you're in the whole time. Like, I, I don't know, for me, at least, I'm like, I can't pin it to like, I did that one thing that right for those, that six month period. And that's what did it. It's kind of like, you know, these kind of, uh, yeah. you can't necessarily pinpoint it that precisely. No, I don't think you can pinpoint it. Um, I mean, for me personally, I think a large portion of it can come down to just like motivation and like kind of having a closer end goal. That That is something that definitely helps me um, kind of keep all of my ducks in the best row possible. It's one of those things, man, where like 100% of the time I'm doing like 80% of this stuff right, right? But 20% of the time, I'm doing 100% of the things like perfectly. Um, and I, I do think that makes a difference for these, these later stages. Um, and I think a lot of the time, it's very dependent on external life circumstances. Like, yeah, yeah, just personal, professional stressors, just all that stuff, you know, um, I think that like, not every season is going to be your season, right? Like we might have 
a, a crappy spring, but hey, we have a great summer. Or we might have a crappy summer, but you have a great fall or like whatever it may be. There's different seasons um, in all of our lives and different chapters in our journey. And yeah, we you, you can't necessarily pinpoint it, but we just kind of we're here for the ride and we try to make the most of it. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a good perspective. I'm always like, like strike when the iron's hot, ride that wave whilst you can. And I kind of had that mentality when I was like, oh, I don't have kids. Like, like I don't have like too many stressors. Like, I'm just going to ride that wave. I'm like, man, I've been riding this wave for years now. <laughs> I was like expecting something to come up. I have to yeah. keep riding it. Um, and it, it's like that motivation piece. I brought this up on a few podcasts now where I think like people poo-poo motivation like almost completely. And I know like lots of these things are habitual, habitual for us. Yeah. But like keeping training like a little bit exciting, like enjoyable, even for people like us, like it, it does, the staleness almost comes in through psychology sometimes. So I, I do think there is something to that where like yeah. it doesn't have to be completely like, yeah, you have your basics there and you can call those boring basics. But overall training can still be like you might need something to keep it a little bit interesting now and then. Yeah, for sure. Like right now, I, I basically train solo all the time. You know, in the past, I've had spurts where I would have a training partner, maybe two out of my five sessions a week or whatever, and that can be really beneficial. Um, so sometimes having a training partner can definitely help. Um, if it's the right training partner, sometimes it yeah. can also take away. So yeah, like those factors can come into play. And there's so many pieces to the puzzle, man. It's, it's not always going to be perfect, but if you're moving along the right direction, you'll look back, you know, one year, four years later, five years later, a decade later, and you'll be like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I, I stayed along this path and it was kind of all worth it. For sure. No, I think that's a, yeah. a great message to actually end things on as well. Um, yes. Thank you so much for for taking the time, Chris. I think I could uh, my pleasure, talk man. to you uh, for ages. It's great catching up. Um, Likewise. If people want to kind of keep up to date with what's happening on your end, I guess things might be a bit busy for you and a bit quieter. But if they want to keep up to date the research and maybe you'll share yeah. some insights into family life, <laughs> where should they be watching? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm not nearly as active on social as I used to be, but I'm still on uh, Instagram at just my full name, at Christopher.Barricat. You guys can go to schoolagains.com as well um, for some educational resources or coaching services. We work with lifestyle and uh, competition prep as well. And then one thing I did want to quickly mention on probably August 1st, I'm going to start my third cohort of uh, this online course that I've been doing since January of 2021 with my man, Josh Bradshaw. So that's a four-week online course for trainees and coaches that want to learn all the X's and O's and the principles and the the scientific physiology, kinesiology, practical application components of things. Um, so that'll probably drop. Uh, the, the live cohort will start again um, August 1st. So you guys can check that out again at schoolgains.com. And yeah, I'll be sharing the family stuff for sure a little bit, but I've been a lot quieter on social media as a whole, but uh, I'll definitely keep you guys up to date with the research and anything I, I truly find beneficial and interesting. Uh, sometimes I'm hesitant to share a message that I've shared, even if it was like three years ago. And like, there's so many new eyeballs out there. I just like, oh my God, I said that three years ago. I'm going to say that now. And I just like, don't put the message out. So that's kind of my bad. So um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens in terms of me sharing stuff or not sharing stuff, but I'll be For around. Sure. Yeah. Fantastic. Amazing. I'll Thank make you, sure Steve. that's all linked below and uh, that course sounds exciting. So I definitely hope people jump up on that. And yeah, thanks so much for your time and thanks you guys for listening. We'll catch you soon. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it.
losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The minicut movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.